Hello there, and welcome to No Extra Words, One Person Search for Story. My name is Chris Baker-Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor, and it's good to be back. It's September, and my four-year-old started his new year of preschool. I'm sure a lot of you sent kids back to school, and back to school came with a lot of things, including a brand new Scholastic Book Order form. Now, if it's been a while since you've seen a Scholastic Book Order form, rest assured they have not changed much. The price list looks a little different. You can order online, but they still come in that multicolored newsprint. The order form is still on the back. They're a little more colorful and maybe a little less smeary than they used to be. I think they're easier to print now. But they haven't really changed all that much since I was a kid back in the 1980s. In fact, I doubt they've changed much since Scholastic first launched their direct-to-kids reading club sales program back in the 1960s. Now, for me... The coming of a new book order form back in the day meant books I could afford. I was a bookworm on a budget, and they're still, this is not a promo for Scholastic, but they still are very affordable books, which is one of the advantages of them. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, for me, the coming of a new Scholastic book order form also probably meant there was a new Babysitter's Club book. The Babysitter's Club launched in the late summer of 1986, and I was seven years old. I think it took a while for me to find them. I don't remember reading them until I was about nine. They probably had made their way into the library and eventually found me by that point. But I discovered them in a big way, and I was not the only one. The Babysitter's Club was the brainchild of a scholastic book editor who had seen sales of an older book on babysitting increase and thought the girls, kids in general, but girls especially, would enjoy a series on babysitting. So she tapped Anne M. Martin to create the characters and the structure. And the plan was to do a four-book series centered around these four main characters who would create this club. And there would be one book from each character's perspective. The first book, Chrissy's Great Idea, sold out its initial printing and Scholastic knew it had a hit on its hands. Over the next 14 years... There would be 131 books in the main series, plus there was a series of specials, a series of super specials, a spin-off series featuring the babysitter's little sister, a set of mysteries, and the Forever Friends series that would eventually finally lead to the girls graduating from middle school in 2000. They were in middle school for 14 years. There would also be a board game, a movie, and oh so much merch. They were, in short, a phenomenon that sold 176 million books for Scholastic and counting. We will get to the series reboot. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, Scholastic knows from Phenomenon. In September 1998, 12 years after the publication of the first Babysitter's Club book, Scholastic published a book by a debut UK author to whom they had paid a record amount for the American rights to her first book. In America, the book was known as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That franchise would eventually consist of seven books, primary books, with a number of spinoffs. That list is still growing. At least nine movies I can think of off the top of my head, and over 500 million books sold worldwide. At the height of the Harry Potter craze in the early 2000s, I was a young librarian, and I can tell you the book world had never seen anything like what happened with Harry. If you really want to get into what it's like to live through a phenomenon, I highly recommend Melissa Anelli's Harry, A History, which takes you behind the scenes in what it was like to live through that crazy period. But back in the BSC era, Harry had not been dreamed of, children's books were still primarily for children, and the Babysitter's Club was a juggernaut. 
way too much for series creator Anne and Martin to do by herself. So the series was ghostwritten by a number of in-house writers at Scholastic to keep up with the demand. This is very, very common with children's book series to have a staff who write them. A lot of times with your more famous children's book series, the the author, as listed on the cover, doesn't actually exist. It's just a pseudonym for a team of authors who wrote these books. Um, Carolyn Keene of Nancy Drew fame is probably the most famous of those made-up authors, but there are many. Anna Martin is real. She estimated herself that she probably wrote about 60 to 80 of the total number of Babysitter's Club books published. Remember, there's 131 in the main series, and then many, many, many more in the various spinoffs. So of the entire collection, she wrote about 60 to 80 of them. The rest were ghostwritten in-house at Scholastic. Now, when I first started the process of writing and researching episodes for season two, what you're listening to right now, the Babysitter's Club was so high on that list because I couldn't talk about books that had influenced me as a reader without talking about the Babysitter's Club. But it was also kind of embarrassing. You know, these are not high literature. They're what I sometimes refer to as book candy, the little treats that you get that are just easy to dive into and read for fun, that don't challenge you quite as much as great literature does. So I was kind of embarrassed, and I didn't really know how to put them into context. I didn't want you all out there in podcast land to be laughing at me. And I didn't really know how they fit into the world of great literature. And then, as I was researching, I happened to catch a little note about how the ghostwriting of this series worked. So you have this in-house team of ghostwriters, And consistency becomes important. So somebody has to keep the Bible. This is true of a lot of things that are written by a team. Like TV series are famous for this. You can't have... So if your TV series stars Sam Smith, you can't have Sam Smith say in episode 10 that her father has died and then have the father make a cameo appearance in episode 49. And if you have multiple writers working on a project, that's a super easy thing to do. So somebody keeps the Bible where they just make notes about all the things about these characters and about this plot line that you need to know. This was true on the Babysitter's Club as well. There was a Bible that was, who's allergic to shellfish? Who speaks French? Who dated the captain of the football team? And at the height of the series' popularity, that Bible was kept by a 19-year-old intern at Scholastic named David Levithan. Now, I had the honor of meeting David Levithan about a dozen years ago. He spoke at a training for teen librarians in a system that I was at that time an intern for. I was in graduate school at the time. At that time, this is post-Babysitter's Club, post-internship. But at that time, he was a scholastic book editor with a few YA titles under his belt. So he's gone from 19-year-old intern to YA editor and author. Today, he is editorial director at Scholastic He's the founding editor of The Push Imprint, which is a primarily YA imprint that focuses on issue-driven fiction, new voices, and a lot of LGBTQ authors. He himself has written over a dozen YA books, many award winners. He's edited many more, and he's co-written novels with YA authors Rachel Cohn and John Green. David Levithan is no slouch in the world of young adult literature. David Levithan's career as a novelist, started in 2003, post-Babysitter's Club, with the publication of Boy Meets Boy. Now, to put Boy Meets Boy into context, we should talk a little bit about the history of gay YA books. I'm going to link you in the show notes to a website, 
I think it's just called The Gay YA. And it has a wonderful master list and history of the genre and recommendations and book lists. So I will link you to The Gay YA and you can get lost over there with all the wonderful titles and the great history. But I'm going to give you a nutshell of kind of where Gay YA has been. So in 1969, John Donovan published I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip with Random House. There is some great history about the publication of that book in Dear Genius, The Letters of Ursula Nordstrom. I've mentioned that book before. It's one of my favorites. If you are somebody who digs the history of children's and young adult literature in the United States, you got to read that book. Um, Ursula Nordstrom, of course, was children's book editor at Random House from the 1940s through the 1970s. And John Donovan was one of her authors. His book was the first book for young people in America that referenced a same-sex relationship ever. And it was extraordinarily controversial at the time. This is 1969, guys. As an aside, many of the big players in mid-century children's writing were themselves homosexual. That list includes Marie Sendak, Margaret Wise Brown, Louise Fitzhugh, who wrote Harriet the Spy, and of course, Ursula Nordstrom herself. So they may not have been able to talk about homosexuality in that literature, but gay writers have shaped children's literature in America. And people don't know that. Following Donovan's book, the list of LGBTQ books for young adults remained very small for decades. 1982's Annie on My Mind is kind of the next touchstone in the genre. It depicted a lesbian relationship, and it was the first book for children that depicted homosexuality as not a phase or a disease, as a permanent part of these characters' lives and something that was sort of normalized. Annie on my mind, I've never read it all the way through. It does feel very dated now, but it sent shockwaves through the publishing world and it has been continuously in print since its initial publication, which is unheard of. But even after that, the publication of LGBTQ fiction for young adults really didn't pick up much at all in the 1980s and even into the 1990s. Um, this genre is still very new. It has some early titles, but you're talking about less than a hundred known titles published between, you know, 1969 and um, the 90s. You know, this genre grew very, very, very slowly. As a an insight into how uncommon these books actually were, so the American Library Association presents the Stonewall Book Awards. That's their award for outstanding LGBTQ literature. Those awards did not include a children's or a young adult category until 2010. So this was a genre that was very, very slow to grow and is still very controversial. We just wrapped up with Banned Books Week not too long ago. And if you look at the list of books banned and challenged in America, books that depict homosexuality for children are still going to be very, very, very high on all of the lists of most commonly banned and challenged books, even in 2018. The first LGBTQ book for teens I ever read was 2003's Geography Club by Brent Hardinger, who's a local author here. It deals with a group of high school kids who sort of find each other and they want to start kind of a secret underground society to support each other, but they need to keep everybody away from it. So they give it the most boring title they can think of, hence the book's name, Geography Club. There's nothing particularly wrong with Geography Club. It's a perfectly fine book, but there's nothing particularly interesting or groundbreaking about it. And this is really what gay YA looked like, even in 2003. It was all issue-driven. It was all realistic fiction. It was all problem novels. And it was all about coming out, about, you know, it was about the controversial side of being gay. It was like that was the only story being told. Enter Boy Meets Boy. 
it originated, according to David Levithan, with a Valentine's Day story that he wrote for some friends. Apparently, he had a tradition of writing a short story for some friends every Valentine's Day. And one of them turned into this book. It's a romance. It's delightful. It's very, it feels very bubblegum fiction. It feels very light and airy. And it's set in a world where the fact that these two characters is gay is not a big deal. It's set in a high school where there's a gender-fluid homecoming queen who also plays football, and it makes being gay not the biggest problem of these characters' lives. The biggest problem of the character's life is he's screwed up with his boyfriend and has to get him back. It, it's a full of the kind of romance and sweetness that non-gay YA can do, but gay YA had not done up until that point. Now, depending on who you ask, the fantasy world where the homecoming queen is gender fluid and the gay straight alliance is about teaching straight kids to dance is either the biggest strength of Boy Meets Boy or its biggest flaw. If you read reader reviews of it, they're either, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to read this book. It was such a relief. Or what kind of world is he living in? He's just setting kids up for disappointment. However you feel about it, though, it has become a classic in 15 years in the world of gay YA. Like, this is the the next big book that everybody who's studying the history of the genre has to read. It was a book whose time had come. Teens of the early 2000s were ready to move beyond coming out stories and problem novels. They wanted romance. They wanted funny stories. They wanted sci-fi. They wanted regular old YA books where being gay wasn't the biggest thing in a character's life. 15 years after the publication of Boy Meets Boy, this is still something teens ask for a lot. Can we have a book where some kids are gay and it's not a big deal? They're just kids who happen to be gay. The world of the novel is still most certainly a fantasy. I can't think of a high school that I've ever seen where it would be quite that accepting. But I do think we're closer to it, or at least I'd like to think we're closer to it in some places than we were then. It's been quite a 15 years in the history of homosexual rights in the United States. For David Levithan, Boy Meets Boy was just the beginning. As I mentioned, he's written a ton of YA, including YA with famous authors. I think for him, the pinnacle is really 2010's Will Grayson, Will Grayson. That's the book I buy everybody for their birthday. It's co-authored with John Green, and it is the case where the combination of the two authors is better than any could ever be alone. David Levithan is kind of very light and fluffy. John Green can be very heavy and dark. You pair the two of them together and you get this wonderful combination where they kind of take the edge off of each other. It's a great book. David Levithan's been in the world of young adult literature for the better part of three decades, and he's gone from the guy who knew which babysitter had braces to a force in the industry, finding new voices and pushing YA and gay YA to new heights, because in addition to being an author himself of these books, this is a big part of what David Levithan does, is find new talent and new stories for Scholastic and the Push imprint. So you put those two things together, and it's a little jarring to think of David Levithan being a big force on the Babysitter's Club back in the 1980s to where he's gone now, and how young adult literature has been on the journey from where it was then to where it is now. So, you know, 1986 Babysitter's Club comes out four years after Annie on My Mind in the history of of how YA and, and children's literature talk to kids. It has changed dramatically. Did the Babysitter's Club have something to do with that? Is the Babysitter's Club more than it first appears to be? Well, that at least is for sure true. What appears to be this light and fluffy series of books about babysitters has had remarkable staying power. 
Babysitter's creator, Anna Martin herself, was not a fluke. She went on to win a Newbery Honor for A Corner of the Universe and continues to be an important figure in children's literature. And while the Babysitter's Club books are dated and have not been consistently in print, they are still kicking around out there. From 2006 to 2008, Scholastic released the original four novels in graphic novel format with the collaboration of talented graphic novelist Rana Telgemeier. Rana Telgemeier, if you have never read a graphic novel for kids, start with Rana Telgemeier. Um, her books are fantastic. They really are great literature in addition to being great art. And she got her start as a graphic novelist rebooting the Babysitter's Club and was herself a huge fan of them back in the day. You talk to readers and writers, especially women in their 30s and 40s, about how they came to love books. And for a lot of them, the Babysitter's Club will get thrown in there at some point. So Raina Telgemeier did the first four books of the graphic novel series. Again, they only planned to release those first four. And... It was such a huge hit that they ended up releasing them in color. They originally came out just in black and white. And they, as of this recording, have signed a contract with another graphic novelist, Gail Galligan, to do the next four. And two of those are currently out. So they have the first six Babysitter's Club books in graphic novel format. The next two are forthcoming. And I'd be willing to bet if they continue to sell well, you're going to see more of them. And they're great. I read a couple of them. I had read Christie's Great Idea um, several years ago when it was pretty new. And in preparation for this episode, I read Marianne Saves the Day, which was my favorite Babysitter's Club book back in the day. And also Dawn and the Impossible 3 because I wanted to see how they were treated in the hands of the new novelist. Because both Christie's Great Idea and Marianne Saves the Day were done by Rana Telgemeier. Dawn and the Impossible 3 was the first one to be done by Gail Galligan. And they're all great. The art is fantastic. The stories are very, very true to the storyline. My sister, who was the one that I shared Babysitter's Club books back in the day with, found Chrissy's Great Idea on display at a bookstore. We were walking through it a couple weeks ago. And she picked it up and she handed it. And she's like, I can't believe we're still doing, they're still doing these. <laughs> and I said to her, open it. It's a graphic novel. It's really good. And she opened it up and was surprised at how how much it resonated even now. Um, in 2010, Scholastic released a prequel the summer before, which also caused them to reissue at least the first four. I think it might have been just the first four original novels because the original Babysitter's Club books are no longer in print. You find them. They're around. You can pick up and use bookstores, but they have been out of print for quite a while. But when they released the summer before, they did a re-release of the early titles with new cover art. And I picked up Marianne Saves the Day again in that format at my library. And that was interesting. Um, they did a couple of updates to the text, not many, but there's a scene where Marianne is calling around for, she's babysitting and there's an emergency. So she's calling to try to get someone to help her. And they talk more about the people not having their phones on and not taking their phones with them because, of course, now you would call a parent's cell phone, whereas when this book was written, you had to call the place where they were. Um, just the world has changed. They've done a few updates of those kinds of things, but the text is primarily the same, and it doesn't feel as dated as you think it's gonna. It's really interesting how much they really do have some staying power. They, they feel a little quaint. Children's literature has changed since that time. The fashion and lingo might be dated a bit, 
but the plots themselves don't seem to be. There's nothing wimpy about these babysitters. Without the help of either grown-ups or boys, they have launched a business. And despite the ups and downs of all the typical middle school life, it is their business that they focus on. And they show themselves to be mature and responsible and smart. They are wise women of the world, really. Every book in the series passes the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test was created by a feminist comic book writer. And she created the Bechdel test to see how women are represented in fiction. To pass the Bechdel test, a fictional work has to feature two female characters who have a conversation about something that's not men or boys. And a lot of people, in order to truly count, the characters have to have names, meaning they have to be important major characters in the work. Interestingly, only about 50% of fictional works, books, movies, etc. pass the Bechdel test, which probably says something about the way women and girls are represented in fictional works. Every single book of the Babysitter's Club passes the Bechdel test and then some. This is definitely formulaic fiction. You know, it's it's the Nancy Drew of its era, but without too much drama or making a big deal out of it, it touches on racism, divorce, death, chronic illness, cultural diversity, blended families, food allergies, parenting styles, so much more. It's all in there in the interactions with these babysitters, each other, their families, and their clients. So if we're talking about the history of children's and young adult literature, is there a straight line, pardon the pun, between the Babysitter's Club and Boy Meets Boy? What Scholastic has been good at doing all of these years is giving readers what they want. That's how come they have had these series that have been juggernauts. And what young readers really want most of all is to not be talked down to. That's why Boy Meets Boy resonated. That's why the Babysitter's Club resonated. That's why Harry Potter resonated. Because Scholastic gave readers real books with real stories that they liked that treated them as readers and not as children. Love them or hate them, these books met kids where they're at. And the characters from Stony Brook, Connecticut to the New Jersey High School of Boy Meets Boy Readers can relate to these kids because they feel real. Yeah, they're a cooler version of us. And yeah, they may go to schools where people are treated better. But they don't feel like they were created to preach at you. And they don't feel like they were created to be an example. And they don't feel like they were created to make you less than. They feel like you. they might sit at your lunch table. They feel like people you could have a conversation with. There's a reason that girls all over America wanted to start clubs of their own. It felt like something you could do. It felt like something that was real. Literature for young people has come a long way since the 1980s. There is a a line between them, but even the formulaic fiction of today is better quality than it was then. It should be. That's a good thing. I'm delighted to say there are much better books in the Babysitter's Club books, and the better variety of them. You open your Scholastic book orders today, and you have more choices than you've ever had. But these books still have a presence in 2018's literary landscape. The fact that they're being re-released, the fact that they've been rebooted, the fact that you can go to Scholastic website even now and download a checklist to see if you've read them all, it shows how much they resonate. It shows there's more to them than meets the eye. It shows I'm not the only one 
who wants to come on the microphone and talk about them. In fact, I'm not the only one who wants to come on the microphone and talk about them. I've got to look because I haven't listened in a while. But there was actually a podcast that was out for a while. I think it might be still going um, called The Babysitter's Club Club. And it's two dudes who'd never read these books, but their sisters had. Two guys about my age. Their sisters had, their wives had, and they went reading through the series and made a podcast on it. And it was delightful and funny and adorable. And I will check and see if it's still going and I will link you to it in the show notes. Because these books are still hanging around. A lot of people, when they talk about the books their childhood, mention the Babysitter's Club. Because not all literature has to be broccoli. Not everything has to be war and peace. Not everything has to be a classic. There's room for ring dings, too, and you'll probably find some under Claudia's bed at a babysitter's club meeting. And the fictional high school boy meets boy, that'll give you a pretty good sugar high, too, if you're into all things sweet. But that doesn't mean it isn't a good thing for readers, for YA and for gay YA, that the book exists. Sometimes when I'm writing my Goodreads reviews, I tell you that a book is wonderful and you should read it because it's important and it changed my life. Sometimes when I'm writing a Goodreads review, I give a book five stars and I say, it's not as great literature as it should be, but I'm just glad that it exists. In the trajectory of children's and young adult literature, I'm glad that Anna Martin, The Babysitter's Club, David Levithan, and Boy Meets Boy are books that exist. I really hope you've enjoyed this book pairing. I especially hope you've enjoyed it because I think it's going to be our last one. I'm tying a bow around this, these last 18 episodes and calling them the end of season two. It's been a delight to bring these to you. I've enjoyed this format, but as with all things, podcasts have to change to meet the needs of those listening to them and those producing them. I do have some plans in the works for some things that I want to do that I want to bring to you all. I'm not done sitting behind the microphone, but I'm not ready to tell you yet what next steps are going to be. As you know, I have a new baby. That's why I haven't been around as much. So I'm going to put the podcast on hiatus at least through the end of 2018. Get to work on some next steps. And I hope that you will find me on social media. I'm on facebook.com slash no extra words, goodreads.com slash no extra words. I am at no extra words on both Instagram and Twitter. Find me in one of those places so that I can update you on what's ahead, because I am really excited about what's ahead for 2019, even though I'm not quite ready to tell you what it is yet. Don't hit unsubscribe. Leave the no extra words in your podcatcher app and find some other fabulous things to listen to, maybe even the Babysitter's Club Club. And I'll be back. I promise to share more things about books and stories and the people who create both books and stories. In the meantime, thank you so much for being with me on this incredible journey as I go deep into how we create and consume stories. And I will talk to you very, very soon right here on this mic.